0: 7, These are the stakes. Welcome to IR Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Yolan Kluger. This week, I spoke with Dr. Diane Koontz. Dr. Koontz is the Executive Director of the Center for Adoption Policy. She has also taught diplomatic history at Yale, Columbia, and Duke. Prior to her diplomatic history work, she was a corporate lawyer working at White Case and Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. She's the author of numerous books, including Butter and Guns, the Economic Diplomacy of the Cold War, and a forthcoming work on the diplomatic, economic, and social history of U.S. international adoption. This conversation was quite interesting as Dr. Kuntz has had an extremely wide-ranging career and can speak on an enormous number of fascinating issues. As a brief note, there will not be an episode for the next two weeks due to the holidays and New Year's. IR Talk will return the following week with a brand new episode. Enjoy the break. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. Why is it important for historians to write well?
1: I, I think it is crucial for historians to write well, for ourselves and for other people. and what I think and this was one of my colleagues when I was teaching at Yale was Peter Gay and he would sit there with sentences. I would give him drafts. he did this for me for a chapter of my book for uh, Suez book of I would say, well, it would seem that if you think about it, well did they or didn't they? that the more you qualify things, the less you are sure you know. That it's, it goes back to Voltaire's comment, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. That that is the first thing. And the second thing is that if people have to translate your English into English, which is to say your jargon into what they understand, you are creating an extra layer for them and making what you say inaccessible. Now, perhaps there are some people, and this is rare, I have to say history is not as guilty, this as some of the social sciences, who perhaps like to obfuscate. It makes you sound better, you're using better language, you're, you're, it sounds longer syllables, and it sounds learned, but you're preventing your reader from getting the excitement of, the, of being back in that past time. Because as much as we, the past is, again, I'm going to be saying these phrases which stick in my mind. They're not original to me. The past is another country. We are all people, but we were influenced in different ways by different times. And the more we can get our reader into that, into that exciting world of history, the more they will be captured by it and want to read it and want to know what happened. And there's so much information out there that we would like people to be able to access the basics. And when I say the basics is how our world was built, which to me as a diplomatic historian is about power and money. And then your subsidiary factors, geography, culture, factors like that, but it's about these basics, but how do you get people to understand it and to want to read it? You tell them the story, but the story has to be based on facts. And that is very, very crucial because I have come across students and you can hear this with people in the news saying this, well, you have your facts, uh-uh. There's one set of facts. There are different opinions on it, but facts, we, we, that's all we have to hook our lives on are these basic facts that the events that happened in 1946 caused the events that happened in 1947 and not vice versa. And I think that is something for someone of my generation who didn't grow up with the internet. You are able to check these facts, the basic facts, not not the interpretations, not the, was the Soviet Union aggressive in 1944 as well as 1946, not interpretations, but who was the prime minister of country X in year Y? And I'm stunned by how many th- things I read now. I say, well, no, that, that's simply not true, but it's not true because I say it's not true. It's not true because it just isn't true. And if it's all about opinion, we all have, we have no nothing to hang our hats on, nothing to be sure of. And there are facts that we, we want to exalt the facts, but not the interpretations. And I think sometimes that's lost
0: these. Days. If historians PhD programs are great at teaching Archival research. So, how do they go about writing well? How do historians go about learning that craft?
1: Well, can I go back to the word you just said archival, the two words archival research? I am now writing a book and I, I've had this funky career, right? Because I started out as a Wall Street corporate lawyer, which I was at two of the big Wall Street firms, White and Case, Simpson Thatcher, for seven years. Then said, no, I, I want to go back and get a PhD, went half to Oxford, half to Yale, stayed at Yale. but. Than Colombia, but for the last 20 years, I've been working in the policy field as uh, director of the uh, Center for Adoption Policy, working in uh, domestic and international adoption, working with policy issues, working with bringing children home, crafting laws and programs. But now I've gone back and I'm writing a book called The Importance of Having Children, how sending countries utilize children and American uh, families were formed. And when you go back to doing historical research and you haven't done history research for 20 years, what your standard of, first of all, is, how much is out there? How much is accessible that I've had, and, and here I was doing this book during COVID. I had all these archival trips planned. I was going to go here, I was going to go there. You couldn't go anywhere. You just type in, and, and this is why i was been teaching at Duke, so you type in your Duke edu and you, you get this access to an astonishing amount of information, which keeps on coming. That if you don't look for six weeks and you go back to that chapter, are 10 more scholarly articles written about them. And okay, you can dismiss five, but you still wanna read the other five. And for starting out, how do you narrow it down? This was not a problem. When I wrote my first book on the 1931 financial crisis, I could say to myself, I've read the relevant archives. I've read the scholarly articles. I can tell you that that I know the field of this. Now, especially given the overlap of in the field of international adoption, you've got history, you've got political science, you've got international studies, you've got adoption studies, so many different fields that you have to figure out how to narrow it. and, And that is a skill which I'm also just learning. When do I stop? When do I say, well, I hope I haven't missed that there? My advisor at Oxford said, when I asked him this question, he said, well, you have to do all this, this and this. And then he said, in the last instance, it's a question of judgment. You use your judgment, but then we use our judgment about how you use your judgment. And you ask, but now it's just so much harder because there is so much more. And I think trying to figure out a hierarchy and I've got to use that word hierarchy, so a hierarchy of priorities and how much are you going to read? When are you going to start writing? When are you going to stop? Is also a skill that in the internet age, we have to teach our students.
0: How do you, priori- how do you prioritize? Is it a question of certain sources, certainly that are more cited, that are more reputable in certain ways? Or how do you go about prioritizing what to read?
1: Well, I think it's going back to the outline and going back and back. And to me, I, and this is very important in my writing which is taking from my mentor at Yale, Gaddis-Smith, who was so influential in in my learning how to be a good historian and other people at Yale and Oxford, that you start with an idea in history. You're you're obviously think this is a good idea. I wanted to find out how America used its financial power in 1956 during the Suez crisis. I wanna know how it is that you had these international adoption waves or in the 1931 crisis, I kept reading in the books, well, bankers brought down the British government. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense because I've been working with these international bankers for seven years and and this doesn't make sense to me. But so you come with an idea, you, you go to your basic secondary sources, you then Go to the logical primary sources, which for me now is the State Department files, the Freedom of Information Act information, CIA reading room, the CIA, Freedom of Information documents, my own documents. Because the minute I started the Center for Adoption Policy with my co-executive director, Ann Reese, I knew I was going to write a book. So I have accumulated my own archive uh, of documents of what we did when we did it in the period after 2000. But you have to always be open. My book isn't the book I thought I was writing two years ago. You have to keep that tension in your mind. And you have to, and I think this is perhaps an old-fashioned historian's creed, which is to believe that you are writing the most objective book you can. Now, you can't just say just the facts. You can't say I, you're not a, a searchman engine. So you're not putting in everything. But for me, because I was personally involved in this particular field, that I am being very clear, I am not writing a legal brief on international adoption. I, we just won a case at the appellate court in Washington. And there, you, when you write a brief, you are not giving both sides. You're giving your side and you are demolishing their side. But that's not what I think a historian does. You are trying your best to get the what happened. Von Ranke's history as it actually happened. You can't do everything. You are colored by who you are. You are colored by when you were writing. You are colored by everything you've experienced. But you try your best, which means you're testing your evidence as you go along, not cherry picking to find the evidence that proves your thesis. But being willing to say, yep, how I saw it a year ago is not now that I've done the whole book, the first draft, and I've looked at it and I've thought about it. It is different than I thought. And it's keeping that balance and then going back and checking the authors and, and talking to people, talking to other historians. There's a, there's a new field, a new way of looking at things. Have you seen these younger scholars? For us, Diplomatic History, OIH, American Historical Review, these are core Journals, but there's so many out there. And the, the, for me, the, in, in English, but then also now you can translate them. So it's Spanish, Russian, Chinese, and it keeps on going. But at some point, you have to say, stop. You have to say, I'm doing my best, but I have to stop because otherwise all I'm going to do is, is research and I'll never get to the writing part. But to answer your question, how do you get to the writing part? It's by reading. It's by reading great historians, just to give you examples of recent big books, which I've just thought were magnificent, Nicholas Stargardt's books on the German home front, John Connolly's new book on Eastern Europe, looking at, and of course, Tom Schwartz, who wrote an excellent biography of Henry Kissinger, which I've relied on a lot for my Vietnam chapter, people who write well and getting these sentences and their cadences, and going back to the great historians of the past and reading and, and reading some of the popular histories. Sometimes in the academy, we sneer at popular history. Some people do. But like Antonia Fraser is a perfect example of somebody who writes, if you like, British history, her, her new trilogy on the Reform Act, on Catholic emancipation and on women's rights. Beautifully written sentences where, where you just you're just in the period of seeing what was it like to break down the barriers, for example, to anybody other than the richest people voting or Catholics being permitted to vote. And, but, but she brings you into the drama and it is dramatic. And, and that's why I love putting in stories because that's part of the fun of it. Knowing the people getting involved with the people. If it's John Foster Dulles very strange relationship with his grandson or it's Herbert Hoover, who's, who was our obviously our president in, from 20 to 32, but his son was a high-ranking Eisenhower administration official, and Herbert Hoover Sr. couldn't even be bothered to go to his son's retirement party, even though his son's retirement party was held in the hotel where Sr. was living. That's just weird, right? But it's interesting, and you can put that in as you think about it, that these are also real people with real lives. And making and that also informs your decision because they didn't know what they were doing was important. And I'll go back to this wonderful anecdote about the Suez crisis where the private secretary, of the foreign minister says it was a bad day. My boss's dog got sick and I spent the whole morning in the veterinarian. Then the Andrea Doria sunk and I had to deal with all these people who were in the middle of the ocean. What am I going to do with them? Oh, yes, it's 11 o'clock and the Suez Canal has been nationalized. He didn't know this would be the crisis of 1956 on that day. And it's bringing that atmosphere in your books because that is how it unfolds. You know, They're not just concentrating on your bit. They're doing all these other things. And how does it fit in and how does it fit into their real lives? Just in the adoption field, the people who are in the field, who are making policy, who have adopted have a very different people view than the people who were adopted or adopted and it was a failure. And it really helps to know these backstories, but it makes your reader understand. One of my favorite stories that I'm putting in my new book is about the first person who became known in the newspapers to adopt from Greece in the 1940s. You can't make it up. His name was Mr. Orphan. If I said I made that up, because I think the adoptive father should be called Mr. Orphan, you'd laugh. So if that really was his name, and he was the first guy, and he was from Battle Creek, Michigan. So you can throw in Kellogg's Quarterplace, the all-American thing, this poor impoverished child. It it just that's the writing that lights up because that, that's what history is. It's these wonderful stories, but they're grounded in fact, and you're I'm all of it's interesting, but some of them. And that's what diplomatic history does, is is it governs our lives and determines our future.
0: How did your work as a corporate lawyer and your training as a lawyer affect the writing of your historical work?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question. And I was just actually talking about it today in a different context. Uh, Certainly when it comes to banking and finance, of understanding how it worked and understanding and, and, and particularly, say, my first book, when bankers overthrew the government. Bankers don't overthrow governments. Bankers want to work through the governments to get what they want. And again, they don't have the time. This is sort of, you think about people who have the time to plot and to think they don't work that way. But what they do want is, is, is cover. And what they do want is to get paid back. And how do I take this? How do I look at the power and the money? and looking at the money from different angles. For example, if you take um, the foreign aid question and you say, well, for example, the United States in the 1950s and 60s gave X amount in the Middle East to Israel, this is how much it gave, that is a lot of money. But actually it was very little money. The fact is we didn't actually give them much money until after 67, but even now, even then, the big money to the Middle East started and continued through the American tax code because we allowed the oil companies to basically be the conduit through which American taxpayer money went through to the oil producing states. It began in 1950s, 50-50 oil split tax decision. But historians don't always look at that. And when economists look at subjects like that, they don't look at the history part of it. So, by actually doing financial deals, because what I was was corporate finance and international lending, those were the things I did. But to see it, and also to see sometimes the carelessness of being in a multi billion dollar deal and calling up a bank and saying, Do you approve? Because when you do these very big deals, you have syndicates of banks, groups of banks who get together and fund, and realizing that this bank had not actually received the documents. And so would they give their multi millions to the loan? They said, oh yeah, sure, we'll sign. I said, but have you read it? Said, well, it doesn't matter because your bank already says it's okay. I wouldn't have thought people would work that way, but they do work that way. And knowing that, and when I got to Oxford, I had done something called Eurobonds and I had, there was another student there and she said, well, I'm doing my dissertation on it and I'm reading it. And I said, but this isn't how it works. And she said, well, that's what it says it's how it works. So well, yes, but, and I think it gives you that insight. And it also, I think it it gave me a very great interest and respect for the law. But it also, again, I keep putting in my mind, because now I've had three hats, lawyer, advocate, and historian. That Those are three different things. And that when I I really, and especially for this book, because it did, in my adoption book, which turned out to be about money. It didn't, and it turned out to be, how sending countries use international adoption to get money from the American government to get rid of their surplus children and to make their countries more cohesive. It didn't turn out to be about love and finding families. That it was very important for me to separate that out. And frankly, to separate my my own personal feelings as an adoptive mother, because I have my four biological sons and my four adopted daughters. that you you ha- that I am writing this as a historian of what of what happened, not trying to write a book to convince you to think international adoption next week is a good thing. That's what lawyers do. That's
0: what policymakers do.
1: That's not what historians
0: should be doing. In reading um, the, through archives and getting a better understanding of how inter- adoption international adoption worked, but also in your previous books, did you get an understanding that the idea of sort of Real, the realist point of view or that of that power is the foremost of the foremost importance in international relations that sort of morality is takes a second seat to that. Was that, did that become clear? Is that a sort of an archivally uh, true statement?
1: I would well, obviously I, I'm about power and money, so I think they're both very, very important. I think there are cases when something different motivates people. What is really striking to me, is how the view morality can be used basically any way you want that when you are reading a nazi a person who's planning to have the lebensborn program i know what that is the lebensborn program was a program designed to do two things one it was to take children who were in orphanages or from families that seem to be Aryan. So these are only Christian families. Jewish children were just killed, so they're not part of it. Christian family children and take them away from their biological families or their birth countries and put them in Nazi family, in German families and turn them into German children. So it it was, and the second corollary of that was to have Germans in the occupied territories in Eastern Europe Impregnate women and those children would be raised by, uh, by German families. So the the women who became pregnant were particularly this was in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, uh, not Sweden, Sweden was not occupied, but Norway is the big country. That they would then, after the child, they would be put in German maternity homes and they would be then given to German families. This was always talked about in terms of morality, that this was the moral thing to do. And in the same way that when you see these more or less forced single women, then called unwed mothers, with children who were then called illegitimate, being told you must give your children, you can't raise your children. That child is going to be adopted or put in an orphanage you know, because you are a sense of sin. That was to preserve the moral health of the community. So I'm very skeptical now about moral because it just does seem to be something that can be used for it's moral now let me figure out what that it is that it's it's more it's so elastic same with the one child policy in China was that moral was it moral to have abortions forced abortions at nine months well it was that's what the leadership of the Chinese government said it was that was saving the country from the famines that had gripped it for 6,000 years.
0: Are ideas important within the international context? Is it mostly material factors or are there some ideas that are powerful enough where it is maybe not a moral question, but certainly doesn't have to do with strictly power? Well,
1: I think ideology is very important. And I think a belief in the nation stated that's what it is. And that's what you see in terms of economic sanctions, because I've written a lot about economic sanctions and I still am that economic sanctions work. Who do they work against? They work again in democratic countries against your allies who are not doing something they consider important. So perfect example, if you have Britain in 1940. Chamberlain's right. Chamberlain says, look, if we have this war, we are just bankrupting ourselves. We're going to lose our empire. And the United States is going to be triumphant. And Winston Churchill says, yes, that is absolutely true. He knows it's true. But we can't live in a world with a third right. That this is more important. And we will bankrupt ourselves and lose power because we want to save ourselves, whatever you want to say. You want to save the nation. But you take Suez in 1956. Here is, you are taking this canal. This this makes no sense as to why you are going to go to war, really, when you think about it. And you've got, and it's a democracy. And you've got this one treasury official who says, Well, if we have an embargo by the United States, and if we don't have foreign exchange, we will not be able to give our British people roast beef for dinner. And we must have our Sunday joint for dinner. That it's not important. So it's not a matter of national interest. You don't have another source of income, which is to say that's why it's important that it's your friends forcing you to do it. And it's not a live or die situation which is why sanctions are not economic sanctions will not work against Iran. Oh, and most importantly, it has to be democracy because if it's a dictatorship and the ruling class is happy, then it doesn't really matter. Then it, it, it becomes something else. But in the case, and World War II is so good about this with, with the British, because this democratic nation did support fighting Hitler, because this democratic nation understood that this was a life and death struggle against somebody who was pure evil, and a regime that was pure evil and a regime that Britain couldn't live with, even though the consequences were not going to be good for the British empire, no way, no What
0: is it that sort of more Marxist historians miss in saying most of, most of what goes on has to do with economics and if there's ideology, then it's just a superstructure from economics?
1: I think they miss people. That there is both ideology, there is belief systems, there is your devotion to your family. There are all sorts of different factors. It's not just about economics. And it's also, how do you define economics? Do you define economics by how much everybody has, how much I have? But certainly they're right in that you can't ignore economics. And you can't, and that especially where you see this, and this is where I think when people talk about domestic policy sometimes, or also social history type things, and I say, I see this in the adoption front, is where's the money going to who's got the money, that, you, that it makes a difference, for example, that foster care for the first time in 1961, you start having a lot more foster care and fewer orphanages. Part of the reason you have that is ideology, but part of it is beginning in 1961, the federal government is funding foster care. Without federal dollars, you would not have had a switch that, that went so quickly somebody's giving you the money for that. And that if you read a a lot of people who do adoption or foster care history, they just talk about, well, there was this ideological shift. No, 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 there was also money involved. Look at and see, and how one of the interesting things in domestic social policy, which I'm coming to as a historian late in the day, because my other works didn't have domestic policy, I taught domestic courses, but I didn't research on them, is the way the federal money has affected so much of what we do domestically now. How much comes through the federal government and what that means for federalization and federalization particularly of social policy, such as family care policy, health policy, how you're influencing it. You have the ideology, but it wouldn't work if you didn't have the federal funds. But why do you have the federal funds? What was that about Franklin Roosevelt that made that because the new deal is the transformative moment where you before the new deal most americans only had one way they had a contact with the federal government so the post office because there were very few veterans comparatively speaking the bonus pay Army that was why the bonus army is there right because they're not getting any money all of a sudden the new deal you have this con- you start getting uh, the average person starts getting money from the federal government. Why is that? Well, that's partly power, but it, but it's an ideology, which is actually, of course, influenced by the Soviet ideology, which is to say there's another alternative out there. So what are you going to do to make the world a better place? You're not going to leave this vacuum to the Soviet Union. You're going to come up with a progressive policy, progressive in the sense of how it was used in the first half of the 20th century, progressive, a liberal, if you will, policy that is funneling these dollars, which is going to change social policy, which was influenced by ideology, but is equally influenced by the
0: money. In your book, Butter and Guns, you advance the idea that having an enemy, in that case, specifically the USSR, what allowed was a sort of boon for the U.S. economy um and allowed for sort of U.S. defense spending which ended so it wasn't a a trade-off between butter and guns like in uh classical economics but it was both and kind of thing um is does that is the same thing true with the rise of China does that same logic hold for having an alternative system which is different from the U.S. capitalism does that does that provide a sort of boost to defense spending to the way our economy? Well I
1: think that that is an excellent question. I think what we are all faced with this is a to me and historians through the past, and I'm so much better on the past because so few of my predictions have come true <laughs> that and I, I am loath to make them, but it does feel like it, it is a geopolitical turning point because we do have a Chinese government, which is, I remember I was giving an alumni lecture with Gaddis Smith on the night of Tiananmen Square in 1989. And the big night when they had the Statue of Democracy and it was right before, the the day before the tanks rolled. And it's this exciting moment. At that point, we're not excited about the fall of the Soviet Union because because that's November 9th, this is June. And it's this idea that China's really going to be democratic. It it is going to, here's this moment. And even though that was crushed, there is this pervasive sense that China is moving on toward democracy, that that Deng Xiaoping and his successors, that this is a country that wants to join the world economic system. And it's moving, it's already capitalist to some extent by the time you get to the 2000s, but it's moving in this democratic fashion and it's, it's getting there. And all of a sudden, when Xin Ping comes in, Xin Jepeng comes in, Peng, sorry, and my pronunciation, much as my children make fun of me, because uh, my daughters are from China, that um, is not good at all. But he is not that. He has declared himself Mao's direct successor. And you could see it. I, I went back, I, I went to China seven times, to mainland China. And the, the really what was instructive is the difference between 2014 and 2016. And stayed in the same hotel, you go into the Grand Hyatt in Beijing because I took each of my children back when they were at the end of fifth grade. So they could see their orphanage and they all wanted to go to Beijing and then we went to Hong Kong. Go to Beijing and on the hotel desk is a sign. And it says, by order of the Chinese government, you cannot get Bloomberg, AOL, uh, Time Warner, New York Times, and this list of internet sites and anything else the Chinese government deems inappropriate. That had not been there in 2014. And then the security has changed. When we went to the province, which is in her case, Jiangxi, I lost all cell phone coverage. I was cut off. I had my guide who had a cell phone, but she's Chinese and and, and she's explaining social credit and she's explaining all this, how everything is checked and all the internet is measured. And you realize you are cut off. This is a different country than it was in 1996 when we made our first trip to adopt Eleanor. It's just a different place. And I think we're all getting used to that idea that the China that we saw, is it, is it the Soviet history, the famous thing, history doesn't repeat itself at it rhymes. that it's not exactly the same thing, but that this government is a government that in a lot of ways has similarities to totalitarian states, that it is an all-encompassing communist regime. Oh, you can, is it communist in the classical sense of what you're thinking about Marx? No, but it's a dicta- classic dictatorial regime with totalitarian characteristics that has unprecedented social media control over its people and is looking, are they, perhaps there is also with the issues, cause they are having issues. They have a declining population. They have all sorts of various issues. Are they trying to do the Politik instead of Innenpolitik? Thing? Is that what you're seeing? Because just like with Germany, and I'm not making any comparison with Nazis here, please, please. You know, I want to say that three times. But just as you would not have found anybody in Germany who thought that the Eastern settlement on, after World War I was fair. People did not think giving away Danzig to Poland as, or as a free port, giving away East Prussia to Poland was right and just. That was universally unpopular. Getting Hong Kong back is uni- was universally popular. Clamping down on Hong Kong is very popular. These things are very popular things for Xi Jinping to do, having the space program that they're doing. They're not, the, again, these are things that bind that country together. What does it mean for us when they have the Navy, when they have these islands that they are building? It means, I think at the very least, a reconsideration of American foreign policy and military policy in the Far East. And then what does that mean for the American economy? Do we keep, start really making a military that's not a legacy military, but a new military? How does that job with the new spending bill that's in Congress, that's cutting? There's an idea that you want to cut defense. Those are issues, I and the hard thing I think now is I'm not sure very many people want to think about those issues. But I was talking to someone and they said, well, you know, why don't we just be ourselves and we'll let everybody do everything? And I said, well, that all depends if they're going to let you do yourself, right? And where do you draw the line? Britain always said one country cannot rule the continent. That was their policy when it was France ruling the continent. That was their policy when it was Germany ruling the continent. Is our policy no country can dominate the Pacific? If that's our policy, should we only be thinking about the Pacific? But what about now here, of course, is another question. When we're thinking about military buildups, what happens if a Russian regime decides that those Baltic states were ours since the 1770s? Perhaps we should take them back. How do you feel about Belarus becoming yet another Russian republic? It was a Russian republic for an awful long time, the Soviet republic. It was also a Russian possession before that. What do we do then? Well, some of these countries are NATO members. You didn't go to war for Poland in 1939. You didn't go to war for Poland in 1947. Are you going to war for Poland now? If Russia is now on the border, I don't know. But these are questions that I think people have not been paying attention to because you didn't have to. We sort of had this, we had this honeymoon. You could call it the Locarno era. But locarno has gone, are you exactly in the 30s? Well, of course not, because it only rhymes, so you're not. But what does it mean? And what does it mean for the economy? And can we ramp up our economy in the same way when we have so much debt and so many needs for social spending? Would people buy the argument, the interstate highway system, Eisenhower sold the interstate highway system as a way of getting the missiles places. It was going to help defense. The National Science Foundation was going to help defense Sputnik here, National Science Foundation there, beefed up Education Act over there. Is that going to sell things in today's America? You tell me.
0: Maybe. <laughs> um- Going to my closing questions, who would you say is a scholar who had a big impact, or scholars who had a big impact on your intellectual upbringing, both maybe both as a lawyer as well as a historian?
1: Well, that was such a wonderful question, and I'm going to answer it in two ways. I'm going to say certainly my senior colleague at Yale, Gaddis Smith, who taught me how to teach and was just such a wonderful mentor of how to be a historian, how to look at the things, how to look at the facts but but also in his dedication to undergraduate and graduate teaching because i think that's so important is students excited and interested and to understand that that is as important as your research that you are there to teach and and he he was he's such a he's still, you know such a dedicated teacher of graduate students and mentor but to undergraduates as well It was gaps, that's who he was and and Absolutely. But I I actually was thinking about that. And I would say that my love of history derived from somebody who was a self-taught historian, which was my father, who did not have a formal education, but talked enough about history that I did have an opinion on John Foster Dulles when I was six. And so, and, and always was a, he was a very pragmatic reader of history and explainer of history and always don't believe, I remember reading the Russian, cons, the Soviet Constitution when I was young and you know, I was about 11 and saying, look, dad, look at these things. It's great. He said, you can't look at what they write. You have to see what they do. How do you feel about it? And he was listing the gulags and this, you know, teaching me how to look behind things and inspiring me to have a love of history. So I, I thought I'm going to answer your question that way and give him his credit and hope and and think that those early influences can make such a difference. And I I did learn my love of history early on, but Gadda Smith was just an amazing mentor and colleague and I owe him so much, so.
0: And who is a younger scholar or younger scholars people should pay more attention to?
1: Well, what I've been very excited about in my Vietnam chapter, one of the things about this book is the international adoption. It's a history of everything, right? Because my countries are Ireland, Greece, Germany, Cuba, Latin America, Vietnam, Russia, China, Romania, and then Ethiopia. So as you see, there's nothing, and you've got all various kinds of social history. But in the Vietnam chapter, I have been really impressed by the work of a number of young scholars, and I would particularly call out Sean Fear, who teaches in England, who is who've gone to the archives in Vietnam and have this very thick understanding, because the the first, a lot of us who wrote books, the younger people who wrote books, here, when they were young and wrote them, there were no Vietnam archives that were available. But the Vietnamese government now has been extremely generous about wartime archives. And so they've gone and they've brought real texture. And and Sean's work on, on the Second Republic, which is from 1967 to 1975, about how this government operated. And how they saw things and and the fact that they were actually at one point recognized by more countries than North Vietnam, that they had a stronger diplomatic base and they're trying to work with South Korea, Taiwan to try to Singapore to be East Asian before they were called East Asian Tigers, to be East Asian countries that are going someplace. And it all goes horribly wrong, and there are lots of reasons why, but. But reading this work, because I don't have the languages for this, so I'm relying on their work. But I've been very, Simon Toner is another one who's in the Vietnam field. Really, really exciting work. And you're going to see this, I think, more and more with countries. I'm going to be very interested to see the younger younger scholars who have the European languages to go into the 80s and the 90s to, to see these this work as, they're, as it's coming out. And
0: how do you read the news in a way that's different from the standard haphazard manner?
1: Read it by reading everything as much as I can. That's what I do at night. I read the, the New York Times. I read the New Yorker. I read a zillion things on Substack. I love Substack. Barry Weiss. I have Daniel Gordas on, on the Middle East. The But I read the British Press. I read Times of India. Just You can get it all online and a lot of it's free. And you just read these and you see these different viewpoints. Because more and more the way, and, and this is... I rely a lot on newspapers.com and on the New York Times Archive for my work. And you see the way newspapers, especially the New York Times and the the Washington Post, the the big newspapers, the, the, the ones with large, the influential ones, that they really tried for an objectivity that now they're more gearing toward an audience. So the different ones you get. The better it is. And particularly when it comes to foreign issues, you don't see the coverage in the American press about a number of issues. And I say, like, for example, the Times of India is so interesting because you do get the, the view of how it's being seen in Delhi and um, Mumbai, which a lot those stories don't come here. I, I would give a miss to the uh, China newspapers and to RTI because it's just predictable. They're, they're back to being Pravda which is that read those things to see what the government wants you to know. It's certainly not going to give you any insight into what's really happening.
0: Do current students know more than Athenian students did in the time of the Peloponnesian?
1: They know different things. Not a lot of them have read Plato's Republic, which of course is after the Peloponnesian War. But but they, I think, that, well, they certainly are literate about technology. I'll tell you that. And they have access. They, they have What I would say, I would ask a different question. I would say, do current students know more than they did 50 years ago? And I would say yes and no. That students, it's much more self-directed. That there are students like you who are going out there and reading diplomatic history and interested in, in that. And then there are students who spend their lives on social media. What I think is, And they therefore know a lot, but they know it from sources that say, well, where did exactly did you find that? Uh, And I think what has always been true, and I don't know if it was true in the Peloponnesian War, but I do know it's true about every generation, is the black hole is the 30 years before now, that people have read books about what's happened. But once it's something is too long ago for current events but too short ago for historical study they know not they, they, you're missing things so for example i had a student last year who said well the united states and china have, have since 1945 have been on the same side about everything i said well no not really but that that was just a period she hadn't done and she was a very very bright. There's a Duke law student and she's very bright knew a lot of things but didn't know anything about American relations with, with China. And that there's that whole of the recent past that you really need to do. And, and I not yes, I, I don't feel that I know enough about the Peloponnesian War students, but I do know that that is an area we need as, as professors to make sure we fill in. And that, by the way, is you know, one of the fascinating things that somebody who grew up during the Cold War that nobody under the age of 40 has any remembrance of it whatsoever. And that is is such an amazing thing that we're having to say that this, now you obviously know about these things because you've read all these books, but you don't have any memory of it, but nobody under 40 does. And that is such an amazing thing because the Cold War was all consuming and it's not like World War II where there's, there's a movie. There are no movies other than a couple of spy movies, but you're not going to really get the understanding of what happened. Whereas with World War II movies, you get the idea. There were bombs here, bombs there, and they fought. But this has disappeared completely. What was so, Butter and Guns is not a comprehensible book, if nothing about the Cold War. And nobody remembers it anymore. And when I started writing it, there still was a Cold War. And that's, that's what's amazing, that one day you, it was, and the next day it wasn't. So I think that's where there's this real hole where we, we need just to be cognizant of it, not, not to say, because we didn't know other things either. And one of the things that I will end with this is I'm always remembering how little I know compared to things or did know. I remember when I was deciding if I should go to Oxford or Cambridge, and I was talking to somebody who wanted me to work with him. And he said, well, how's your Latin? And I said, well. do latin you didn't do latin how can you consider yourself educated (laughs) it's like that that was a standard till it wasn't and i thought i was pretty educated at that point but he didn't and so we're all less educated than the people in the past but also more educated than people were then as well
0: Dr. Prince. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.